Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to another new Energy Chinwag um, with Charlie Ratton and myself, John Massey. Uh, it's good to be with you again. Um, it's very exciting today because we've actually got uh, not only not only a guest, um, we've got a guest from almost the other side of the world, um, California, um, Lincoln Blevins. Um, Lincoln, I'll let you introduce yourself before we kick off. Oh, great. Good morning. And uh, yes, and, and greetings from uh, Los Angeles or, uh, or La La Land, as it sometimes referred to. <laughs> uh, my, uh, my name is, as you said, my name is Lincoln Blevins. I am the uh, Assistant General Manager for Power Supply at Burbank Water and Power and uh, in Burbank, California. Um, we uh, Burbank calls itself the media capital of the world, and that's where we have, uh, uh, and it's true, we have the, uh, the, Dis the uh, Disney uh, uh, is here. Uh, Warner Brothers is here. Uh, Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon. Um, we have a, a huge media presence, and that's about that sort of commercial uh, load is about seventy-five percent of our energy. We also have a very robust and um, active uh, residential sector um, for uh, our electricity customers, as well as our water customers. Um, my background is not uh, very typical for someone in uh, a municipal utility. I come out of the emerging markets and power project development and project finance and mergers and acquisitions uh, of power plants, that sort of thing, more on the deal side. But uh, I have found a, uh, a very, very happy home in uh, public power and um, uh, really enjoying what we're doing out in California. We're maybe not on the bleeding edge, but definitely on the cutting edge in terms of trying to find a sustainable future in the power business um, uh, while remaining uh, affordable and reliable. And the reason that that's so important is that, uh, you know, electricity is both an enabler of uh, climate change solutions like electrification, but also an enable E in that you have to make the electricity uh, greener in and of itself. So uh, tremendous challenges in um, really exciting uh, to be doing the work and uh, really excited to be on the program. Okay, good. Um, I guess let's let's just explore all limited knowledge i know i know a reason about about california hopefully um my, my sister actually lives in california she lives more up in the bay area um the things i know about california in terms of clean energy the ones that we hear most about here i guess are the duck curve that always comes up um so this issue of having lots and lots of solar in the middle of the day when you don't necessarily need any more and then not enough in the evening um and the implication for that on ramp rates and things for other things uh, so that's one of them uh, and i guess certainly noticeable to me in the bay area was the number of teslas driving around again i don't know if that's typical of uh, where you are um but i guess though first looking at power generation um solar is obviously the big story um is that is that true from from where you're sitting are there other bits other parts of the renewable the supply clean supply story that we should be focusing on as well uh, there are. Um, and in fact, it does go back to the duck curve uh, that you mentioned. We um, are, uh, you know, I, when I look at our portfolio, we're at about 33 percent 
renewable, uh, about 40% carbon-free if you include uh, our large hydro as well as our, we have a little bit of a, a nuclear plant as well. But uh, we're about a third renewable now, and that's a, a very um, diverse portfolio from wind and solar, a little bit of geothermal. Uh, we're also uh, buying biomethane, um, uh, that we're burning in a combined cycle gas turbine on our site. Um, and all of that qualifies as renewable. The The big story, though, as you say, is is solar. That is, for a variety of factors, which I'm, I'm sure you guys have covered elsewhere, solar took a dive, uh, a very fortunate dive for us in terms of cost, and continues to get cheaper. Um, the PPA pricing that we're seeing now would have been fantasy even a couple of years ago. Uh, in what, terms what sort of prices are we talking about? Uh, you know, we're, we're starting to see uh, uh, dollars, U.S. dollars per megawatt hour in the in the 20s and the low 30s. Often that that even comes with a few hours of storage for a portion of the plant, battery storage on site. And so, you know, as, a, as an ex-developer, I'm, I'm actually... Uh, I'm, I'm starting to wonder how anyone's making any money on these plants because, uh, yes, the capital costs have come down, but it seems that everything else is being bid down uh, pretty ferociously as well. And on the utility side, I'm, I'm thrilled because what we're able to do is substitute um, renewable power, intermittent renewable power for baseload gas and coal power, for example, on uh, a very economic basis and you know obviously the renewables need to be integrated whereas uh, the gas is uh, in particular is dispatchable but um, you're, you're we're starting to see a much more favorable cost picture and as a result our aggregate portfolio hasn't gotten more expensive as we've added renewables and that was when we started adding renewables um, uh, 15 years ago that was the big fear is that yeah. uh, power prices were going to go up. But between the, the drop in, in renewable pricing, principally solar, but also wind, and how low natural gas prices have been, you look at your, your total power supply portfolio, and it really looks a lot like it did uh, you know, before the age of renewables. So that, that really helps us. It seems like um, remarkable progress, uh, Lincoln. I think uh, we in the UK are heading towards a, a third of grid being uh, decarbonized as well, and certainly California seems to be uh, uh, matching uh, that. So thinking of thinking of wind power, for those of a certain age might remember the old Rockford Files, uh, I don't know, it's Hollywood program or wherever Rockford Files was filmed, but I seem to remember a lot of uh, old lattice wind farms being uh, filmed uh, or, or kind of appearing on the old uh, uh, Rockford Files, but I seem to remember at Wind Farm School that the, the wind resource out there was something of a push-pull wind resource where the heat sucked in the wind at certain times and, and, and the, the, the reverse. So it wasn't like a, a UK wind resource, but it was much more, it was predictable, but it seemed to be only a couple of times a day. Does that match up with what you've heard? Um, it, uh, it does in, in specific. There are some, um, some places in and around uh, the Los Angeles area where you have um, those, you know, a, a break in the mountains. And the temperature differential between the ocean on the ocean side and the desert on the desert side can create some really extraordinary winds um, where you're, you're driving down the highway 
through on the, on flat ground through the break in the mountains and you literally have the accelerator to the floor just to maintain 60 70 miles an hour in the face of a headwind um, it's pretty extraordinary but what we're finding more generally because I, by by way of background you know there's there's geographic California that we're all familiar with where the political borders are but uh, we have to think about it actually more broadly and that is what I call electrical California. And electrical California actually extends almost across the Western United States in that the, what we think of as the California grid um, actually extends up into uh, Wyoming. It extends up into the Pacific Northwest. It extends out and out into the Western desert. It extends down to the, the Southwestern desert. So when we look at wind, uh, you know, and, I, and wind is very, very local. Um, in terms of its predictability, in terms of when it when it blows, when it excuse me when it doesn't blow, and what we're finding is back to the duck curve. What we're finding is that uh, we need wind that tends to blow when um, when solar is um, is not when the sun is not out, basically, especially wind that blows both in the late afternoon when the solar panels start shutting down and people start turning on their air conditioners, but then also overnight. Um, one of the things that we're finding, having, uh, having plucked the low-hanging fruit of renewables, is that if we're going to meet our goals, we can't just be renewable during the day. Uh, the power supply has to be renewable at nighttime, too. And, of course, solar won't do that large-scale storage gets very, very expensive to do that. So we're starting to look at uh, wind that blows at night, even if it's hundreds of miles away. If we've got transmission, we'll bring it in. We're also looking at geothermal. Um, how do we catch, uh, how do we meet the load at night? And especially if that load includes an increasing number, number of people who are plugging in their electric vehicles at night. So it's, uh... Is Hoover part of the wider California mix as well, the Hoover Dam? It is. In fact, uh, Burbank was one of the original participants. We have uh, about 20 megawatts in Hoover Dam. Um, great story. It's it's one that um, that I, I tell a lot of folks, especially who, those who aren't as, as deep in the business as, as, as we are, um, that resource, it's had some issues with water. We've had some issues with drought. But that resource turns out to be a fantastic renewable integration machine. It's not, it doesn't have a lot of energy, but it's got a lot of capacity. It's very, very quick uh, in terms of ramping up, ramping down, turning on, turning off. And so it's, it's, it's emerging as a, as a resource that the folks who engineered it and built it 75 years ago, I mean, they, they didn't even have those words in their vocabulary. And, yeah. You know, and here we are, here we are using this, this, uh, this grand old lady of the West um, in, in this entirely new and, and very, very modern and advantageous way. Was so, there a proposal uh, to, to make that pump storage or did I draw that up? No, you're correct. Uh, our colleagues at, at Los Angeles Department of Water and Power are working on some ideas and these are, these are all public uh, to one extent or another, they're working on ideas to uh, create a turn a, a one-way machine into a two-way machine. So, 
put a um, uh, another tunnel or two in, actually quite quite far down the river that would pump water back up into Lake Mead, which is the reservoir. I don't I I don't know if that's going to work, but in in specific, but in general, <clears throat> that sort of pumped hydro uh, is absolutely key to finding uh, to to maintaining the reliability that we need and the affordability that we need, even as we get into really eye-wateringly uh, ambitious uh, renewable energy percentages and, and obviously inter intermittent renewables, you know, non-dispatch. You, you mentioned, and you mentioned earlier, I think, about storage along with, with solar. Um, you've, I think you mentioned you've done some of those. I mean, I, I kind of, I've written in various places that I don't think it's too far away in, in some locations and southwest US might be one of them before you, you don't see solar farms being built without storage. Would you would you go along with that or do you think that um, do you think there are limits on how much storage you you build on these things? Um, I, I think there are, uh, but but it, it is becoming the new normal in, in this part of the world. You know, with solar a few years ago we had a shift from fixed tilt uh, installations being the default to a single axis installation being the default. And the new, the new shift, and we're seeing this a lot, is uh, adding uh, developers adding batteries um, to their, their proposals such that the PPA is, is both photovoltaic and batteries at the, behind the bus bar of the project which becomes important both in terms of regulatory compliance here, but also maximizing um, the transmission capacity. But it, it really is becoming the new normal. One of the things that we're, I think we're, we're still on the, on the, in the early days of is the question of, of how much storage. Um, it's, it's very easy from a headline perspective to say, oh, solar plus storage, but the the capacity of that that storage the duration of that storage really affects how the uh, how the the total project can be used and is really based on the operating characteristics of the project itself and so how do we how do we optimize storage against the meteorological data um, that we have available to us such that we get a project that is, we can't take out all the intermittency, but what's the optimal, I'm going to, this is sound, this is going to sound really wonky, but the optimal level of intermittency, um, the optimal level of intermittency from an asset um, at the end of the day. The other, the other challenge that we're, we're a little bit worried about, um, or at least I am, is um, on the battery side. One, the lifetime, um, the working life of these of these batteries, is still very much up in the air. Uh, the folks in the eastern United States that I've talked to are seeing manufacturers' claims of ten years and, and actual operating lives of five years, and, and then you know who pays to replace that that unit. Um, and then, you know, the other question that we're doing a lot of work on in Burbank is is life cycle costs. What what does it take? What's the what's the environmental imprint um, footprint from a mining perspective, from a fabrication perspective? How do we recycle these things? Um, how do we avoid the nuclear scenario yeah, that happened in the U.S. in the 70s and 80s, where nuclear was going to save the world, and then all of a sudden we figured out 
the uh, or we woke up to the life cycle costs of both the uranium and uh, and the waste associated with it. Yeah, so, I think I think we had a bailout in the UK to uh, to address some of those uh, issues, uh, Lincoln. But it does seem yeah. what we encountered up in in, in Scotland was this integrated approach there. We, we were looking at uh, one of the developers thinking much, much bigger schemes. Uh, John and I have talked about hybrid schemes and there are different types of hybrid schemes, but your hybrid scheme typically may include a wind farm and it may include a solar element and a battery. And now of course, hydrogen. Has there any, been any talk about hydrogen in California that you are aware of? Uh, uh, very much so. And in fact, we're, we're very deep in it. Um, as it turns out, hydrogen, uh, it's, it's so interesting. Hydrogen really wasn't on the radar screen, uh, the, the, the general radar screen here in California or the West up until a few years ago. And then all of a sudden it, um, it's, it's become a real focus of conversation for, for a lot of great reasons. Um, it's with the duck curve, uh, you know, electricity, cost is a huge component of hydrogen production. And to the extent that you have that duck curve, you have those very, very low or even negative prices for electricity during the day, there all of a sudden you have this this uh, a negative price input in your model for a big price component and uh, the output starts to look uh, starts to look uh, quite good. So but the the other part of that and the one that we're directly involved in is can you co-fire successfully a, a combined cycle gas turbine, something that is, uh, can be turned on and off, something that um, is dispatchable, has uh, you know, low minimums, decent heat rate, uh, very fast ramping. Can you substitute natural gas or hydrogen for natural gas in those applications? And we're part of a very large coal project, 1800 megawatt coal project out in the Utah desert called Intermountain. And we're working with Los Angeles Department of Water and Power and a few others uh, to repower that project come 2025 as a combined big combined cycle plant. <clears throat> and then uh, very consciously design that combined cycle plant so that it can be converted to higher and higher percentages of hydrogen co-firing, uh, and we would be making green hydrogen at the site out in the middle of nowhere uh, in in the, the high desert of Utah. So we're actually uh, we're actually we're we're quite deeply involved in that. Very very excited about the possibilities, but also very cautious and thoughtful about the fact that we're we're really creating the future to a large extent. Okay, yeah. That that sounds interesting. That was a coal, that was a coal site, I think you said, coal plant. Uh, it is. It's uh, it's been an eighteen hundred megawatt coal plant since okay. the uh, early eighties. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when I've when I've been looking at hydrogen recently, certainly creating it on the same site as you're using it seems to make an awful lot of sense because as soon as you have to start moving it around, converting it, storing it, all that kind of stuff, um, it adds an awful lot of cost and and complexity to the whole um the whole system so so yeah that's that's certainly worth worth watching um have you seen any as i say i, mean, I suppose the other bit you mentioned was electrification uh particularly I, I guess around transport um i saw lots of teslas driving around but I, I don't think i saw any hydrogen cars driving around on on the transport side is is hydrogen still of interest out there 
Uh, it is. It's it's definitely part of the car, the conversation. Um, the uh, but I, I I do believe that in the in the majority of applications, and that's what we're seeing here, electricity is going to be uh, the the standard answer uh, mm. to the transportation question. You know, when I I moved from uh, the New York area to the LA area eight years ago, and had never seen, and I'm I'm a I'm a car nut, so full disclosure, uh, petrol 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 head is Jeremy Clark would say, yeah, uh, and so I I would notice, but you know, back in New York in 2012, um, I don't think I ever saw a Tesla, and I moved out to to LA and. Um, you know, you, you throw a rock, you hit a Tesla uh, out here. Um, they're not ubiquitous, but you um, you literally see them everywhere. And um, they're not ubiquitous, ubiquitous yet. You see a lot of electric cars. Um, you see some hydrogen um, cars, but they're you really have to look for them. Whereas uh, you know, on the electric side... It's increasingly, at least in L.A., very, very urban L.A., it is increasingly not just the environmental choice, but also the economic choice, uh, which is, of course, when, when everything takes off, when it becomes the economic choice. And, and the infrastructure for charging them, that, that's, I suppose most of it's done from home, but there, there will be charging facilities at fuel stations. Is that, is that easy? Uh, it's getting easier. Uh, most of the charging occurs at home, which, again, goes back to why that overnight renewable uh, component becomes so important. But we're seeing we're seeing the charging infra infrastructure pop up in cities, uh, in uh, on city streets, in parking garages. We're actually working with um, Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank. They have, I want to say, about 5,000 employee parking spots on their campus, uh, which is just uh, massive. And we're working with them uh, to electrify that, electrify essentially that parking lot, parking infrastructure. Uh, you're seeing them at shopping malls. Of course, Tesla has its own um, uh, private uh, fleet of chargers. What what makes me, what's, what's so interesting to me though is not what we're doing today, we have to be as aggressive as possible because range anxiety is, is still very real, especially if you're stuck in traffic as opposed to um, actually moving. But um, I wonder about battery technology and whether filling your battery might uh, suddenly uh, occur at the same frequency that you fill your gasoline tank. In other words, we're not going to be looking for chargers everywhere we go. We're going to be filling a 300-mile battery, uh, you know, once a week, and um, simply not thinking about it so much. I and therefore not needing as much opportunistic infrastructure, so to speak. Yeah, on I mean, the, the streets. The, the yeah. early early experience over here, I would say, is that. Um, Operating charging networks is is actually quite a difficult business simply because people aren't using them very much. Um, <laughs> most people are charging at home, um, partly because early adopters tend to be people with home um, off-street parking and so on. Um, and also you're starting to see supermarkets and, and others um, having charges. And they'll do that not because that's not their core business, but they're doing that to attract um, what are at the moment the kind of wealthier segments of the customer base to come into the shop. So um, I think it'll be a completely different world, I think, 
with with EVs. Um, there'll be there'll be lots of charging at home, and then because an EV is well, a car currently is hardly moving most of the time. Most of the time, it's parked. Um, you'll be kind of topping up as you park. The so the kind of the rapid charges will be needed, I think. Um, but they'll be actually fairly rarely used, and that's actually and one of the problems there is the business case for for run for building them and operating them becomes quite tricky because you're building something that's hardly ever going to be used. It's, it's an interesting yeah. point that John from here in the northwest of England. There was a piece uh, yesterday in the press, and that was there were about eight million people or so in the northwest of England, so it's quite dense. But uh, it came from Electricity Northwest, and I think they were arguing that because of EVs. They needed to ramp up the rate of electricity generation by about a third within a decade. And I think they've taken a scenario, certainly from what you were saying, that might be a bit fanciful. I, I would agree with that. I, 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 you know, the, the capacity factor on the charging infrastructure in Burbank is, is surprisingly low. Uh, it's, it's, I don't remember the numbers off, offhand, but it's, uh, it's almost in that kind of uh, you're kidding. Are you sure those numbers are correct? Sort of, uh, sort of low percentages. Mm. Um, and when we look, you know, I'm part of my, my part of my job is is long term resource planning, and we've taken a very very hard look at at EV pro- proliferation. We've we've looked at some very very aggressive cases, and from an energy perspective. It just isn't that much energy uh, yet. Um, when you talk about uh, loads going up by a third, that seems as if you're not only uh, electrifying every single passenger automobile, but you're also electrifying, um, you know, your 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 goods vans, your 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 long haul transport, uh, shipping. Um, you're you're electrifying the entire transportation world that that seems I'd, I'd love to be wrong but that seems to be um pretty pretty aggressive at this point yeah i mean i i've run numbers for the uk and um even if you if you electrified every passenger vehicle um in terms of you've got to separate out energy demand and power so in terms right. of aggregate energy demand you only add about 15 or 20 percent i think to the to the whole, the overall electricity um, demand of the country, um, which sound, which is quite a lot. But then you look at over the last 10 years, we've reduced the electricity demand of the country by about 15%. Um, you, it ends up being kind of a nuclear power plant or something. Um, it's not an enormous amount. And obviously, as you say, it's not going to happen overnight. You've got time to plan for it. The, the trickier thing is, is time of charge, because what you absolutely can't have is all those cars coming in plugging in at 5 p.m. at the same time and, and expecting to charge up. So um, the, the trickier things are really around time of charge and smart charging, combining um, charging with, with storage and so on so that you can do demand shift, having demand response, having tariffs in place that encourage people to charge overnight rather than at peak time. Um, so, so that yeah, I think that's – I don't know whether that's where the Manchester people maybe – yeah, I mean, the, the, it's, it's the time of charge rather than the overall energy demand that's the issue. Oh, 
Obviously, electric companies like to tell their own uh, story. There was nothing about vehicle to grid in that scenario that I saw, for example. Mm. Like, like I say, it just seems like a very fanciful pushing the boat out. Obviously, it's in their interest to generate a bit of, uh, of publicity, which I think it did. But I, I wonder how nuanced the study was and whether it's taken all the other factors into uh, uh, account. And I presume energy efficiency will continue. Things like lead programmes for streetlights rollout. They will reduce it. Factories are increasingly getting more uh, savvy and uh, the, the vehicles are only one part of it. So why they're saying that they need a third more electricity generation? Well, perhaps it's in their interest to uh, to say that. <laughs> I guess they'd it like to sell a third more. I mean, back to California, I, I guess on the issue of kind of one issue that came up there was the idea of kind of smart demand and smart charging and, and moving electricity about. Um, is, is California mostly smart? Um, meter enabled is, are you doing much in terms of fancy tariffs and so on around that uh you know it, it's very very it's a very very local question um in in burbank and we're uh, just by way of background we're about 16 17 square miles but a hundred thousand residents um we went to 100 percent almost very very close to 100 percent uh electric and water smart meters about 10 years ago so we we have the infrastructure in place, and in fact, we've been rolling out. Um, to your earlier point, we've been rolling out time of use rates uh, for in uh, our commercial customers. We're about to roll out time of use rates for our, our residential customers. We have those rates uh, for our EV owners. We have an EV an EV rate right now, um, and and truly, we're really just scratching the surface of of what's possible. Um, now that we have that information, um, what's possible, but also obviously there's there there are huge privacy concerns there too that that have to be addressed in tandem. But Burbank is 100% smart meters. Our neighbors uh, next door in Glendale, who are very similar to us, are 100% smart meters. But where I'm sitting right now, which is the city of Los Angeles, which is 20 times our size uh, on peak. Um, they haven't even scratched the surface. They've got um, a, a, a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of their uh, electric customers on smart meters. So when they look at anything other than a volumetric, uh, non-time differentiated electric rate, they 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 throw up their hands at this point. Um, there's they really they don't have the visibility. They don't have the control. Yet, so it's it's really hit and miss. It's a huge investment for utilities uh, to make, um, and the benefits, in in my opinion, the benefits are only are only being explored. And when you can when you can only explore the benefits, it's very difficult to conclusively model those benefits against the costs. And what we're finding, um, what we found when we rolled out smart meters in Burbank uh, a decade ago is that the, you, the privacy concerns are real, uh, especially with the residential side. Um, folks don't see this um, as a, an unalloyed uh, good. They see it as something that, that really needs to be thought about. Uh, how much visibility do I want anyone, utility or otherwise, to have into my daily life? Um, and then, you know, the other the other side of that coin, of course, is how much do people actually want to think about electricity? Um, 
and uh, you know, we it's easy to design, not easy, but it's we can design these these uh, sophisticated rate structures. But uh, does the average person, with all the worries that they have in their life, really want to worry about uh, when they do and do not use electricity? And I I I I wonder about that. Yeah, I I have to. I just, it's good to hear that from the kind of the coal face, if you like, because um, I very much take a similar view. I just don't think, I think that you you can tap into a kind of early adopter set of customers that are very active and very keen to play around with um, with different rates and their behavior and so on. Most people, as you say, I don't think they want to go into that level of detail. Now, that doesn't mean that it won't happen, because but they'll want it automated. They don't want to be looking at the electricity price at different times of day, but they might have systems that automatically um, do things for them. But but yeah, I think, and, and not also on the smart meter point, I think we found the same in here in the UK, that there's quite a lot of pushback. There's quite a lot of people that that just don't want smart meters. And and I would say from the, from the utility side, there's not been really a good enough case presented as to why they should have them. Um, so it's it's kind of a it's a bit of both, I would say. Again, Charlie, any? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's been an unalloyed uh, success. The smart meter rollout. I think there are questions as to uh, what, what exactly is a smart meter. Some of the early ones don't necessarily come into that category. Uh, also, the tech. The um, we're talking here in California and uh, the south of England and uh, and uh, Manchester. The tech has moved on. Uh, for smart meters and the, the, the old idea of uh, it seems almost Dickensian some of these uh, the, the, certainly the first generation of smart meters given the apps and things like that and the smart switching that's available you, you start these programs sometimes they just become glorified job creation schemes and some of the utilities are almost saying look you think the life has passed you by life is what happens and you're banging on on this thing that was devised 10 years ago well we're in a very different world from where we are 10 years ago and is it really fit for purpose those are the questions that are being asked out there yeah yeah there was, well, a, there was a big problem here about standardization as well wasn't there a lot of the early early smart meters um they found that you if you switch provider the smart meter suddenly becomes dumb and so on so they're trying now trying to replace those with a, a next generation of smart meters that can switch provider so i mean there have been all sorts of technical and and um other challenges as well that have kind of made a bit of a hash of that rollout. But yeah, I think I, I think there are two the two main points I would say though are that consumers are quite suspicious of them and utilities haven't really in the main provided a good reason um what the benefits are that make it worth overcoming that suspicion. Yeah. Well and and one of the you you've probably seen this too is that utilities in general, whether no matter where you are in the world, uh, what language you're speaking, uh, utilities traditionally, uh, for you know a century, have not really had to communicate with their customers uh, in a in a meaningful way, um, in a way that that a lot of private sector uh, firms uh, have had to. In in so many cases, it's been you know we give you the electricity and we send you a bill and you send us you know money back and uh, you know thank you for your business. Uh, what, what we're finding in California, lately, this is my impression, is that so for, for the last century, so much of the, uh, the innovation and the effort has been on the resource side of the equation, uh, the upstream side of the equation, which until the age of renewables really didn't require any communication with the customer at all. Uh, the, if the, you, know, you flip the switch and the power is on and the customer is happy. Um, 
what we're finding now, though, is so much of the innovation, so much of the change, and so much of the really rapid change is actually happening on the customer end of that equation. So on the downstream end of that equation. And so instead of just kind of holding hands for customers in understanding their bills and, and managing, you know, a switch on, switch off sort of operations, very simple operations, all of a sudden your customer facing part of the utility is really on, uh, that's where the innovation is happening. And utilities in general are having a hard time catching up with that. Yeah, They're having uh, a hard time with that communication. I think I'd echo that uh, that Lincoln. Uh, those of us invo- involved with uh, with wind certainly know how contentious uh, it is, and it's, it's, it's customers have now got a voice. They're effectively stakeholders. They're enabled. They've got websites. They've got a voice. They want to use it, and so it's changing there. There's large scale structures in there. There's uh, there's bits of the kits that people weren't expecting. Yes, you can put a wind farm up, but what about the transmission lines? Where's that covered? And then suddenly people are faced with quite profound changes uh, if, if the smart meters haven't pushed them over the edge of uh, of, of the change threshold then uh, perhaps uh, some of the kit certainly for offshore wind is now up to a third of a kilometer high and people have got <laughs> got used to it, it being, <laughs> it's being you know the, for the old the old style fossil industry at least was discreet you could sight it out of sight in a way and it was 10 miles down the road in the middle of nowhere as you describe it but that n- might not be the case with the new kit coming through yeah, I, I actually uh, there was a uh, picked up a, a news uh, piece uh, on the on the internet yesterday about a a wind farm under development uh, in New England actually, and they were they're facing huge pushback from uh, from the local communities, and I remember not that long ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, in New England where the when the first real wind farms were growing up and they were tourist attractions yeah uh and and you know it, it's it's extraordinary to me how the something like a wind farm which which you know was literally a tourist attraction uh can can all of a sudden become an eyesore and i think it, it is really incumbent upon the power industry, the utility, well, from from the the developers to the utilities, to think about those not just not just today's considerations, but where are we going to be in um, in ten years? Is this is this something that is uh, that is really exciting now, and it's going to be. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think about you know fashions from the '70s. You know, it's it seemed like a great idea at the time, and now it's uh, <laughs> now we don't know why everyone had those. Uh, you know, we're wearing those clothes, uh, <laughs> and I so I, I wonder about that. You know, how do we make how do we bring our business back to that uh, yeah. very discreet, their very discreet visibility level? Yeah. Um, I, won- I wonder where the scaling might provide both the problem and the solution here. We talked to Boehm. And they were citing uh, the offshore wind farms in the States uh, 12 miles from shore because you couldn't basically see them. Even if they're a third of a kilometre away, you still wouldn't see them at that distance. And so obviously when you get a big project, the uh, the overheads regarding cabling and things like that fall away as a percentage of the overall cost. So as you go to the mega offshore wind farms and possibly even onshore as well, perhaps the scale will enable the transmission and the distribution problems uh, a part of the project to, to melt away because the project is so big 
that ultimately they can they can sustain the, uh, the, the the expensive parts of the project. And I suppose the flip side to that as well is, um, at least for solar, is the the rooftop portion. So, uh, I mean, in California, what what percentage of solar is rooftop versus utility, for example? Um, I I don't know the answer to that. I do know that uh, utility scale is uh, is many times larger than um, on an installed capacity basis. Yeah, it's also many times cheaper. Um, even with transmission, uh, it is still uh, a multiple cheaper than than rooftop. Um, so one of the things that we're you know we're looking at in Burbank, we have a theoretical capacity of about uh, 40 megawatts or so against a peak load of about 320. And eventually we will get that built out. But if we did build it out now, it would it would be just uh, eye-wateringly expensive. The uh, so it still makes sense, oddly enough, to put them out in the desert and use you know very precious finite transmission capacity to bring them bring the power in. But ultimately, I, I see that as the future. I actually uh, take it a bit further than that. I see. Uh, materials in general becoming photovoltaic um, as as standard, uh, whether it be roof tiles, roof tiles that look like roof tiles as opposed to solar uh, PV panels, yeah. uh, paints, other surfaces. I actually see it. Um, I wrote a, an exploratory piece about this uh, a year or two ago. I, I actually see it as, as like water to a fish, um, where it is around us, it sustains us, but it's so embedded that that uh, that we don't even notice it. I, that's where I see us going, but the road to get there involves both solar out in the desert or solar in the in you know in the less populated areas, and I I have I've always been very excited about offshore wind given that the capacity factors are very high uh, and all of a sudden you can put uh, hundreds of megawatts, if not more, uh, actually near the load centers um, as opposed to off in the middle, uh, you know, off in the middle of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the less populated yeah. areas away from the load centers. Yeah, I was at a conference about uh, 16 months ago or so in, uh, in London and there were representatives from uh, California there do you know whether that scheme or those schemes have made uh, made much progress in the intervening time, uh, Lincoln? Uh, on the on the west coast of the U.S., um, it's it's still very very early days uh, as compared to the east coast, and and that is in my mind really a function of the uh, the topography uh, on the east coast. The continental shelf actually goes out over 100 miles in some places, uh, so that it is relatively shallow, um, very, very far out. And then it drops off into the deeps of the Atlantic. But you actually have this, I, I think it's only 100, 150 feet deep, going out for miles and miles and miles and miles, whereas the Pacific Ocean is, is very much like the Mediterranean in that it's a bathtub. If you are on the beach in back to the Rockford Files, thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> in, in in Malibu, you know you can you're you're looking and you you look out at the ocean. It gets incredibly deep, only a hundred two hundred feet offshore. Um, so uh, it's very very difficult to do fixed wind 
uh, fixed fixed offshore wind um, in the Pacific Ocean here, as compared to the Atlantic on the Eastern Seaboard. I I get very very excited. I've been following uh, the Statoil um, uh, high wind. I, I call it the floating pencil technology or the floating yeah. chopstick technology. <laughs> that to me is just is just hands down brilliant. I I, I just absolutely love that. Um, and I would love to see uh, floating offshore wind here, but it's going to have to be floating, and it's going to be it's going to have to be a long way off the coast. Um, and to your point about you know that um, the visibility. And uh, and frankly, I, I think we're going to have to we're going to have to leverage what Statoil. Uh, they have a new name now, and I, I've lost it. Uh, Equinor. Equinor. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, but I, I actually see that as a as a big part of that overnight wind and that sort of baseload high capacity factor wind that is close to the load centers, whether it be. Los Angeles or San Francisco or or um, or elsewhere. Uh, I, I do I I see that I see that as a big part of the solution going forward. But huge hurdles to overcome. Yeah. That one did also have high bat. I don't know whether high bat is operational yet, but we uh, we both like the, uh, the it name, bat, doesn't it? Batwind. Batwind was it? Not high bat. Batwind. That's why I like the name, <laughs> which is basically high wind. Sounds, sounds, sounds a bit more Burbanky, doesn't it, than perhaps Scotland, which is where it is. <laughs> it does. Uh, yeah, that's. I, I see. You know, I, I really do see a return. Um, this may sound sort of fanciful, but I, I really do see a return to um, a greater dependence on the oceans uh, for energy. Um, I think we're going to, you know, from the age of sail to the age of uh, of uh, oil and nuclear, and, and all of a sudden we're going to go back to, uh, uh, I think, a, a much more, uh, uh, or, or at least significantly more uh, dependent relationship on the oceans. I, I think people are going to want to live and work uh, near bodies of water. I think that's just the human condition. And as the loads go up, we're going to we can't just look to the land. We're going to have to look out at out at sea too. Okay, uh, we're in time. Okay, we're pro we're probably getting to the point where we we need to kind of start to finish up. I guess we've mentioned we've uh, it's been an excellent review of of what's happening in California. So thanks for that. Um, I guess we've mentioned we've mentioned a couple of emerging things. I've eh? mentioned kind of solar on everything, which is again something I would I would certainly agree with in the in the long run. We've mentioned possibly floating wind. I guess just before we finish, are there any I guess a couple of questions. One, are there any other kind of emerging things you think we need to keep an eye on out in California? And I guess to bring it more back to reality over the next kind of year or two, what would you see as the main main priorities, the main things that we can expect to see? Uh, I I think um, at least in the U.S. Um, we are you know we talked a lot about uh, you know how hydrogen has suddenly jumped into the mainstream. We've we've talked about how electric cars are are suddenly at least here uh, in 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 California are all of a sudden. A very common site, and that to me is is part of a larger uh, pattern. Um, uh, think of it as as a hockey stick, where all of a sudden, um, 
these technologies are going from the uh, from the beta testing phase to a, a, a very visible presence in the market. Um, and I think you look larger and you see, uh, you know, Greta and her and her cohort having taken uh, climate issues from the fringe and all of it, it hasn't, it hasn't been uh, linear. It, it, it's really been kind of a geometric progression of uh, in the public consciousness. Um, and I think we, we have to be on the lookout for things, whether it's technology or attitudes, attitudes towards air travel, for example, that all of a sudden become very, very important to us or, or very, very widespread. Uh, we are not working in a linear world um, in, in any of this. And it is just so exciting to be, uh, to be a part of that. On the other hand, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about EV charging and stranded investments. Um, we have to be very mindful of that too. So that, that's a very, very general sort of academic uh, view, but I, that's, that's the framework that I ultimately put everything in. Um, I see this industry changing more in the next decade than it has in the last century. And um, frankly, I think our kids and grandkids are going to be jealous that we were here doing this now and um, and making all this change happen. Uh, it's just an exciting time. Yeah, certainly. I, I mean, I, I guess that, again, that squares with what we're seeing over here. We've seen an awful lot of change. If you just look at the UK electricity mix over the last 10 years, the change has been extremely rapid. Um, it's it's going to continue going forwards. But I think, as you say, um, you've got to be mindful that it's it's got to be paid for. <laughs> and yeah. a, a lot of people um, are less interested in the change than what comes out of the wall. And you've got to be mindful that you've got to pay for it in a way which is um, is also suitable, is also acceptable for um, the general, general populace rather than kind of geeks like ourselves that are kind of embedded <laughs> in it and, and fascinated by it all. I'd like to add uh, a couple of uh, things. Th thinking about uh, the UK and California, I suppose it'd be fair to say, well, look, California took the first steps on the film industry and that went uh, global, didn't it? So they're not scared of being the first uh, mover. I don't know, was it the 20s and the 30s that the Hoover Dam was uh, was built well before the uh, the Scottish one, so they're not scared of being first movers. And slightly surprisingly, from a conservative, uh, perhaps uh, with a small C place like the UK, I suppose, in the last 50, 60 years, we've done quite a lot on, we've got a sector deal here for uh, offshore wind. It's part of the industrial strategy. We've got a quadrupling of the industry within the next two years. And it's that dynamism, I think, that you were referring to there. One thing we've not touched upon, Lincoln, in California, is the policy side. I know it's more federal uh, the national in the United States is that supportive of of, of the endeavors you described? Uh, very much so. Uh, the the states the states have always uh, have 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 always taken the lead in this uh, over the last 10, 15 years, and that's especially true in the in the current political environment. Uh, cities and states uh, are taking uh, are, are really uh, they have uh, the steering wheel and the and the accelerator. Um, yeah. In, uh, in in this process, um, you know, you, you mentioned industrial strategy. I would I would love to have a robust debate and hopefully a strategy um, at the national level in the U.S. around industry and around energy. But we just we what the reality here, especially in, under the current environment, is that it really is left to the states now. A state like California, which is on its own, I think the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world, um, 
Yeah, we we have been very very aggressive um, on the policy side, uh, very very aggressive on the implementation side, and really, if you if you if you pan out significantly, we're 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 trying to create the future that we want, and really show the rest of the country and and maybe the rest of the world that it can be done, but. Even even under the Obama administration, uh, the states were really looking to solve their own problems with their or their own their own challenges with their own policies, as opposed to, to relying on the federal government. Um, and that's that's you know good, bad, and indifferent. That's the that's certainly the reality here in the U.S. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. I think I think it's still only seven o'clock in the morning where you are. So, so <laughs> thanks, thanks firstly for joining well, us, being so lucid and so informative in your in your responses. Um, <laughs> well, thank you very much. I have to I have to thank my uh, my sixteen ounce coffee cup here too. That uh, yeah. that's fine. <laughs> I, uh, I am tempted, of course, to say in the old cartoon manner, "That's all, folks," but we won't uh, say that yeah. to because that, that, that would be that would be really bad. But perhaps you'll join us again. Perhaps you'll join us again, Lincoln, to have a review and perhaps see how things are going six months or so down the uh, down the line. Because I think uh, certainly we get the feeling that you enjoyed talking with us. Certainly, we enjoyed talking with you this morning. No, that that would be that would be ideal. I, I, uh, you know, California, we can we can be accused of 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 leaping before we look sometimes, but uh, you know, it it uh, things are really happening here, and uh, as you can tell, I get uh, I get uh, very excited about this business. I um, and and I do love to talk about it and and hear what uh, yeah. hear what others are doing. So no, that would be a that'd be a terrific idea. Santa was very generous to me uh, this year. He bought me a Christmas. Uh, he, my Christmas present was a trip to Burbank in fourth of April. So I'm, I've never been to California. So I'm looking forward to doing all the uh, the touristy things. Like uh, I was a bit obsessed with the banana splits as opposed to the Watford Files, and I'm looking forward to reenacting the banana splits going across the Golden Gate Bridge. Like that's something I'm looking forward to. <laughs> Yeah. I'm you sorry. Know, I, I just I, the Golden Gate Bridge. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> <Further away. laughs> okay. Anyway, let's um, let's draw it to a close um, for this week's episode. Again, once again, thanks to Lincoln for joining us. Um, yeah, to Arthur me, and we'll we'll speak to you again next time. Thanks, listeners. <laughs>